Denham Court is a stately home on the outskirts of London, and in the 1920s it sort of uh, fell into a state of, of disrepair. Eventually it even became a sort of a youth detention centre. And in one of the rooms of the house is a very old picture which was kind of covered in uh, sort of dust and sort of the accumulation of dirt. And most of the inmates never gave it a second look. Some even used it as a dartboard to practice. Until one day a visitor looked at that picture and couldn't believe what he was seeing. And he took the picture down, he looked through the grime and the filth, and now it has been restored and it hangs at the uh, London um, National Gallery as a fine example of the 17th century Dutch master Rubens. And so uh, there it sat for all those years unappreciated, but it was a masterpiece. And there they were throwing darts at this uh, priceless masterpiece. And I kind of think that Christmas is just like that. Uh, it, it, it is something that we kind of, uh, we, we, we look past the shepherds and the angels and we, we struggle to see what it is. And it's sort of overlaid with all this grime of, uh, of uh, Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger and uh, Christmas trees and uh, fairy lights. And we struggle to appreciate what it is. And what we've been trying to do here at Charlotte Chapel over the last few weeks is that we've wanted to kind of wipe away the grime, the dirt, and look back at the original masterpiece and explore what it is. And we've been doing that by looking at the eyewitness testimony of Matthew's Gospel. And so what I'd like you to do is to open your Bibles up to Matthew's Gospel, uh, page 965 in the Church Bibles. Hopefully somewhere around you you'll find a a red Bible. If it's not in front of you, it's behind you maybe. And turn to page 965. And for those who haven't been here the last few weeks, I want to summarize what we've learned from chapter 1. We've learned, surprise, surprise, that Christmas is all about the birth of Jesus Christ. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, two weeks ago, we learnt uh, the significance of this genealogy, that Christmas is all about the future. That the two names he mentions, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he told, told us that because these were two men who had amazing promises given to them by God. And in summary, what it tells us uh, is that Jesus is the promised king. The one who brings blessing to all peoples who enter into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus. That was the significance of this genealogy. And so you see, Christmas is actually about the future. This kingdom that will last forever. This blessing that will come upon people as they come and submit to this king, Jesus. But more than that, we learned last week from Andy that Christmas is also about forgiveness. He's the answer to our problem of sin. Look at uh, verse 21 of chapter 1. Uh, Joseph is uh, told, Give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
So Christmas is about the future. Christmas is about forgiveness. And also Christmas is about friendship. Look at the other name, verse 23. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because Jesus came to deal with our sin problem, it means that we can enter into friendship with God because the sin is the thing that holds us back from a true relationship with God. Because he's come and deals with the issues of forgiveness, we then can have friendship with God. So that's really what Christmas is about. Christmas is about the future uh, of God's uh, eternal kingdom. It is about the forgiveness of our sins, and it's about friendship with God. And that's why Christmas really is this masterpiece that we're excited about and that we want to proclaim uh, as each uh, December comes around. Now, as we get to chapter 2 of Matthew, what we see here is that it's all about the different responses to Jesus being king. And as I read uh, these verses, the first 12 verses of chapter 2, I want you to listen in and observe what these three different responses to Jesus are. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 2, from verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route." Three responses to King Jesus. Did you see them? Response number one is King Herod. He receives this delegation of uh, foreign nationals um, from the east. There's a lot that we don't know about them. How many of them were there? Well, we think three because there were three gifts, but actually we don't know. It could have been four and one of them was really stingy. Uh, we, we, we actually have no idea how many people. We just guess it's three. 
Uh, we sing this song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, but you know what? Pro- they probably weren't kings. So either, yeah, well, there we are. That's the nature of cows. Uh, it could be that they were uh, priests of uh, a pagan religion in Persia. Uh, or it could be that the, these magi were sort of more academics, men of learning. We, we read in the Old Testament of Daniel when he was taken to Babylon that he was trained in the ways of Babylon. And maybe these magi were sort of the, the, le- the, the lecturers, the professors of uh, these academies in Babylon. Uh, they were obviously uh, astronomers, astrologers. In those days, those two were exactly the same disciplines. And uh, they were seemingly men of uh, some means, wealthy men. It must have been quite a significant group of men to get an audience with King Herod. Three uh, you know, blokes who can't speak the language very well don't often get to meet the king. Probably there was, a, there was kind of a caravan, a train of folk coming, maybe folks to guard these treasures. But Herod is quite surprised to receive this delegation of, of foreign nationals. And they tell him that they've come to look for the, 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 the child, the baby that's born king of the Jews. How does Herod respond to this news? I mean, earlier this year, we had uh, the exciting news of William and Kate uh, to have a royal child. And it was met with great excitement. It, it, how does Herod deal with it? Well, look at verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. He was disturbed. Now, why was he disturbed? I mean, royal babies in the UK are good news stories, aren't they? Because really, honestly, our monarchy don't have that much power. But not so in Herod's day. Uh, He was in charge of his territory. He basically could promote anybody he wanted to promote and he could have anybody killed that he wanted to have killed and there'd be no questions asked at all. He had total power. And yet, why is he disturbed at a defenseless baby? Well, because his was a disputed kingship. He was given the title by the Roman Empire who were the occupying foreign power of the day. He himself was not Jewish, nor was he a practicing Jew. And the news of one born king of the Jews was profoundly disturbing because here was a rival to his throne whose very life threatened the legitimacy of his own power and control. And Herod did not like that one bit. You can read in various historical accounts that King Herod was a great builder, but he was not a nice chap. He was a vicious tyrant. He was a man who thought of nothing of uh, killing lots of people if it kept him in power. In fact, he ended up killing one of his wives, one of his ten wives. He killed one of them. And when he thought that some of his sons were uh, beginning to do a a revolt, a rebellion against them, he arranged for them to be strangled. Caesar Augustus is on record saying that uh, it is safer to be Herod's sow than his son. That was the reputation of this man. And that's why it says that the whole city of Jerusalem was disturbed because he was disturbed. If Herod was disturbed, this was not good news for the rest of the city. And yet he feigns interest in the wise men's search. Verse 8. 
Go and, and make a careful search for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. All the while, of course, he's plotting murder. Because as we see in a, in a few weeks' time, when the wise men don't come by Jerusalem, he, um, he orders that soldiers go and kill all the two-year-old boys and younger that can be found in Bethlehem. It's a very ugly part of the Christmas story. But it is amazing what lengths people will go to in order to um, stay in charge. King Herod does not want King Jesus to be his king. And there are some people who live their lives that way. They, they are threatened by others. They, they don't want other people to cramp their style. No one can tell them how to live their lives. Uh, certainly not God, certainly not Jesus. They will be king and not Jesus. And so the news of someone who claims to be king is profoundly disturbing to, disturbing to people like that. It was disturbing to Herod. That's one response. Second response are the religious leaders. Look in verse 4. Herod calls the, uh, the spiritual leaders of the Jewish uh, people to discover uh, where the Christ will be born. They didn't need a sat-nav. They didn't need to look at the stars. They had the scriptures. They had the Hebrew Bible. Uh, what we have as the Old Testament parts of our Bible. And they instantly come back. They know exactly. It's going to be Bethlehem. Um, I wonder, can you put yourself in, the, in their shoes? Can you imagine how you would respond in their situation? They knew about this 700-year-old prophecy uh, that, that prophesied that the Messiah King, their Messiah King, would come and be born at Bethlehem. They, um, they hear of foreigners traveling a great distance because they've seen some, some amazing sign in the heavens that's, that's brought them there. Would that make you just a little bit excited? You're an expert in these scriptures. You've taught them. You've preached on them. Something remarkable has happened. Would you be excited? Would you just be a little bit interested but it seems to me that their response is one of disinterest. I mean, it looks like they just go home at the end of their conversation with Herod and don't think much more about it. Isn't that incredible? All that Bible knowledge, all that religion, and yet their response to their promised king is just disinterest. Why is that? I guess they were kind of comfortable with their religious opinions. They were comfortable with the, the religion that they had. Perhaps they knew if they showed a little bit too much interest in this baby, it would cost them in their relationship with Herod. Maybe it was fear. Talk of a Jewish king was going to mess up their settled, happy, contented little lives. They didn't really want to, to know. It was more convenient to push this news Aside, And so this news of uh, the king, disinterest. I wonder, who do you feel that you relate to in this story? At the end of the day, whether it's um, the outright rejection of Herod or the polite indifference of these religious elite, they end up in exactly the same place. A few years ago, there was a documentary about the pop star 
Madonna. And uh, it showed her going on tour around the US. And um, she kept asking this question to her children and to her dancers. Every now and again, she'd say to them, who's the queen? And they all knew to chime back, Madonna is the queen. Can you imagine that? That's what she did. It's as if she needed the constant reassurance about who was the boss, who was in charge, who's the queen. You're the queen, Madonna. Keep paying us, you know. You're the queen. Now, most of us probably um, are a little bit shyer about looking for that level of uh, self-gratification and, uh, and adulation. But the truth is that deep down we often operate in a very similar way, where we are the, the center of our own little universes. We are the thing that matters most. It's our comfort, our ease, our reputation, what works for us. It's me, 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 me. We're at the center. And really, that is, in essence, the same response of Herod, the same response of the religious leaders. It, it could be a sort of an outright political response. It can be a, re, a polite religious indifference. But in the, the day, it's all self-serving. I want to be in charge. And this talk of Jesus and him being the king, him being the one who has the right to rule, is just a bit too inconvenient to me. So uh, no thank you, not interested. And yet, if we continue rejecting Jesus, what are we rejecting? We're rejecting a future of being in his eternal kingdom. We're rejecting forgiveness of sins. We are rejecting, the Bible says, friendship with God. But there is a third response, isn't there? And it is fascinating to me that the... um, the Jewish people and their Jewish king uh, have completely pushed aside the news of King Jesus. But it is these pagan foreigners who show total commitment and enthusiasm to meet King Jesus. What's their response? Well, they are delighted. They desire to worship the king. That's, That's the whole point of the journey, isn't it? Somehow they discern something in the stars and it sets them on a journey. And I, the longer I go on in my life, the more it amazes me the different things that God will put into people's lives that will make them begin to think, actually, I need to find out about Jesus. God can use lots of different star moments in people's lives. I've noticed that it's often when... Uh, a couple have their first child and they see the miracle of, a, of their little baby and it, they kind of think this is too incredible for it just to be chance. I wonder if God is really there many a person has come to begin to seek after Jesus because of that but God can use all sorts of things little star moments in our lives maybe it's a moment where we, we just come to the end of ourselves Maybe we've uh, tried using all sorts of other things as crutches in our life, and none of them have worked. People have leaned on alcohol. People have leaned on drugs. People have leaned on shopping. People have, have leaned on uh, uh, shopping retail therapy and the, and, the, and, the, and the credit card debt that follows. And they realize that there's nothing there. They've pursued success. There's nothing there. And people start 
wondering, I wonder if there's something in this Jesus. Well, that's kind of where these uh, magi had got to. And they show total commitment. They see this sign in the heavens and they come to Jerusalem. Of course, if they're going to look for one born king of the Jews, where do you go? You go to the capital city. So they turn up at Jerusalem and they start asking these questions. And having been redirected to Bethlehem, uh, they see the star again. And look at their response in verse 10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Actually, the NIV has uh, just simplified it. In the, in the original language, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. How do they feel about this? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were utterly delighted. Utterly delighted. And when they found the right place, they saw Jesus probably now as a one-year-old. So all those manger scenes where you've got the shepherds and the wise men, rubbish. Take those wise men, put them in the room slightly to the east of you because they're still traveling, right? When Jesus was just born, they're still, you know, they're still out the east. So you put them in the part of the house. They can be part of the nativity scene, but just somewhere else. Maybe put them in your neighbor's house because it was a long journey. Say, I'm sorry, you've got to take my wise men. Would you? Because they're not in my manger scene. Would you? That would be an interesting conversation, wouldn't it? They would say, oh, nice to meet you. Don't come back again. Anyway, but these guys turn up, and Jesus is probably between one and two years old. And what do they find? It's amazing. They find this kind of poor mother and a one-year-old boy. And what's their response? They're delighted. And these men of some wealth, uh, probably of some significance, they bow down before a one-year-old child. That's a little awkward, isn't it? Have you ever ever had anyone bow down to you? I don't know, maybe... if you're married, maybe your husband went down on one knee. That was a significant gesture, wasn't it? The one knee move. Think, oh, something's up. But they, they bowed down before Jesus. And they opened up their treasures to him. Gold for a king. Frankincense for a priest. Myrrh, strange gift given to uh, dead bodies, symbolizing death gold, frankincense, myrrh, and they lay it out before him. They worship King Jesus. Did they understand everything that Matthew's going to tell us? No. That's what makes their homage to King Jesus all the more remarkable. These pagan foreigners get what those who are closest did not get. And they worship him. You see, Jesus is for everyone. He's for rich, for poor, for academics, for people who didn't get the grades, uh, for pagans, uh, for people who've been in the church all their life but really haven't got it. For everyone. He is the king. And of course, worship is not just about coming Sunday by Sunday and singing a few songs. Worship is is about all of our lives as we seek to obey Jesus by reading his word and applying it to our lives. Every time we do that, we're acknowledging Jesus is our king. We shouldn't expect, of course, that it's going to be easy. Just think of the effort that the wise men went to in order to see Jesus and worship him. It was a long, difficult journey. It was away from home comforts. And the pursuit of Christ took them into potential danger, traveling with all these uh, treasures. But it ended up with great joy. 
And that's the joy we experience when we come to see who Jesus really is and worship him with all our lives. Just contrast King Jesus with King Herod. You know, there's King Herod. He's not the rightful ruler. Here's Jesus. He was. Because Jesus is God come in human flesh, he has the right to be worshipped and obeyed and served by every one of us here today. Herod was willing to basically kill, uh, sacrifice anyone who got in the way of him being number one, of him being in power, of him being in authority. Even his own sons, he would kill them. Jesus comes into the world and he willingly sacrificed himself so that we could become brothers and sisters in the family of God. Total contrast. Jesus willingly went to the cross sacrificing himself so that he could deal with our problem of sin so that we could be forgiven that we could be welcome into friendship with God better than that we could become the family of God Herod's kingdom was one of fear devious insecurity and death Jesus' kingdom is one of peace security and eternal life why would you want any other king why would you want to rule yourself compared to this king? I wonder what's your response to Jesus today? Have you come to the place where you can say, I am delighted in him. I'll offer up my whole life to him. He, he is my, my king, my savior, my God. Well, if the answer is no, then can I encourage you to think about that Glad You Asked course that was mentioned earlier. Uh, there's information about the start date in your bulletin. There's information that will be available tonight if you come back. Why don't you, like the wise men, seek out the truth about Jesus? Ask your, your tough questions. Bring them on. There's, there's, there's a lot smarter people than me who've thought deeply about this and come to be convinced of it. Ask your hard questions. But maybe you know it's true. Actually, maybe you've moved from being disinterested to being disturbed because you know it's a big thing to follow King Jesus. You know it's going to change stuff in your life and it is a little disturbing to you. Can I just commend Jesus to you? You will never regret following Christ. He is a king and lord like no other. He will bring peace and joy and wholeness. He'll make you the best you that you can ever be. If you come to him, acknowledge him as your king, your savior, your God. You know, this Christmas, you could really join in the cows in a very significant way. You could get that you understand you're part of the future. You've got the forgiveness. Uh, you've got friendship with God. And you do so by simply talking to him and asking him, to forgive you and receive you and change you. Let me put a prayer up here. You could do that right now. 
Maybe some people, and you, you've been checking things out, and you're right on the edge, and you are anxious because you know it's true, and yet you haven't yet trusted Him. Why don't you do that right now? Why do you trust Christ right now? Look at this prayer. I'll leave it up there, even during when we pray it. But Lord God, I thank you for the real Christmas. Thank you that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that He came to rescue me from my sins. Thank you that he is the Christ who's in charge of the world and calls me to be one of his followers. I admit that I fail to live as you command and need rescuing. I'm sorry and put my trust in Jesus as my rescuer. I admit that I fail to live with Jesus as my ruler. I'm sorry and submit to Jesus as the ruler of my life. Please become God with me now as you come into my life. Well, maybe there's some people here today and you'd like to pray this prayer for the very first time. Lord God, I thank you for the real Christmas. Thank you that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that he came to rescue me from my sins. Thank you that he is the Christ who's in charge of the world and calls me to be one of his followers. I admit that I failed to live as you command and need rescuing. I'm sorry and put my trust in Jesus, my rescuer. I admit that I failed to live with Jesus, my ruler. I'm sorry and submit to Jesus as the ruler of my life. Please become God with me now as you come into my life. Amen. That prayer is in the back of this little red booklet, The Real Christmas as was my opening illustration. It's tough to get illustrations for Christmas, so it's out of this little booklet. And if you've prayed that prayer for the first time, why don't you let me know about it, and we'll make sure you get one of these that you can remind yourself of what you've prayed today. And it's so exciting if you've come to want to begin to follow Christ. We want to help you and serve you any way we can. Let us know. We'd love to help you grow as you become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, for those who have put their trust in Jesus, we know that this is the best news on the planet. Isn't it? Best news on the planet. And we've come to worship this Christ. And we're going to finish off our time by singing two songs that do that. Oh, Christian men rejoice. And we mean men in a generic men and women sort of way.